Welcome back to Crawford Insights, the podcast where we take a recent post from the Crawford Investment Council blog and discuss it with the author. I'm your host, Tom Bueller, Portfolio Manager at Crawford, and today we'll be discussing Evolutions, Crawford Dividend Growth Strategy, with our founder, John Crawford. Welcome back, John. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you joined us again. This promises to be a good episode, as there's no one better to discuss our flagship product than the person who launched it. The article touches on the history of the strategy, which you went into in more depth in the origins piece. You then spent some time discussing adjustments that have been made to the strategy over time. Let's go ahead and get to it. Okay, Tom. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk about the origins of this approach because it's a good story and it's led to a lot of developments over time that have been very positive for our investors as well as our firm. So, you know, 50 years ago is a long time, but I was a young man at the time and had just come to Atlanta working with another firm, New York-based firm, and that firm embraced a real strong growth strategy. Shortly after coming, I inherited a new relationship with a large regional hospital in the southeast. And the president of that hospital, we'll call him Dr. Smith, he was not a professional investor, but he had strong investment views. And I got started with him. And we began, of course, investing according to the growth strategy that my firm represented. After a while, a few months, he called me over and said, John, what are you doing here? I said, well, Dr. Smith, I'm buying you some of the highest quality, strongest companies that we can find. And he said, well, where's the yield? Being a young man and not too sensitive to things, I guess, I said, well, you don't really need that because these companies will continue to grow infinitely and those dividends will take care of themselves eventually, something like that. Fortunately, Dr. Smith was of a generous spirit, and he tolerated me. And so the conversation went on for a while over several sessions. And finally, I said, okay, Dr. Smith, what's it going to be, yield or growth? And after thinking about it for a minute, he said, why not both? Well, that question really And then my desire to answer that question led to the formation of what we now call the dividend growth approach. So he had a strong interest in yield. I was representing a firm that had a strong interest in growth. How could we marry the two? Well, I basically began to just look for some stocks. I noticed that if companies had raised their dividend year in and year out over a long period of time, that the stocks typically did well. But in some cases, because of a short-term development of a fundamental nature or whatever, the stocks were depressed and the yield was therefore up. So I was looking for something that would satisfy my employer growth, satisfy my client yield, and I focused on dividend growth and stocks that were down in price that had the dividend growth. So that was my answer to why not both. So that's the way I began to invest for this client. And as it turned out, it worked. So for the next nine years, this is what I did. We didn't have a system. I had a philosophy, but I didn't have an approach. I was just picking them. But just picking them on these two basic, simple structures was good enough at that point. After nine years, I started my firm, and that client became my client as well, still is my client, and this is the way we've invested ever since. I'm proud to say it's worked, and a lot of our other clients have benefited from it over these 50 years. So it's kind of a raw beginning, but 
On the other hand, it was a sound beginning because if you think about it, buying companies that raise their dividend every year have a really strong dividend increase history when they're down in price really represents fundamental investment theory. It's like buy really high quality companies when they're down in price and represent value and hold them for a long period of time. So we just set in place the foundation of this approach. And then over time, as we discuss in the second piece in the series, the approach has had evolutions that, in my opinion, have improved it, but importantly, have not shifted off of its first foundation or its philosophical roots. Well, appreciate the story there on the origin of the strategy. It's certainly an interesting one. John, when you talked about starting the strategy, you used a couple of phrases that stood out to me. One was it was pretty raw, and the other was when you were selecting stocks, you were just picking them. You then decided to get a little more formal with the universe of stocks from which you selected. Can you talk about that process and how you determined which ones you were going to focus on? So initially, when I was just, as I said, picking them, basically, I didn't have a universe. The only thing I had was the requirement that they pay a dividend, all right? But then just thinking about how I had incorporated the element of growth into the search for yield and the consistency of the dividend, it just occurred to me that, you know, what if we just found out or identified all the companies that had raised their dividend very consistently over a period of time and see what that looked like. So we had to define some limit as to how long they had increased their dividend. And arbitrarily, I just said 10 years. I thought that was a good length of time for a company to demonstrate their interest in and capability of increasing a dividend consistently. So we found that there were about 400 companies that had consistently increased their dividends over that period of time. So then we began to look at the characteristics of this universe and what we saw we liked. It gave us yield and it gave us dividend growth. And the combination of the two provided some pretty good total investment return. Just to kind of validate this, I thought, well, why don't we have somebody do a back test for us? This was in the days before the prevalence of computers and databases, and I didn't have the capability of doing this myself. So I hired a research firm to analyze this universe and As it turned out, we asked them to invest on paper what it would have been like to have invested in this universe of stocks over a period of time. So we could just see what would have happened if we had invested this way on a really consistent basis. The results, as turned out, were very gratifying. By the way, I'm going to interrupt for one second just to give our viewers a little visual here, a mental image. You literally have in front of you a yellowed piece of paper that's probably 35 or 40 years old, I'm guessing. Um, And I can see it from across the table. It's just kind of remarkable that you still have this. Well, uh, this was an important thing because it was a way of confirming that investing in this universe would be a a good way to invest. And But let me just share with you just a couple of numbers. Investing in this universe could have provided a compound rate over the period 1976 to 1989 of almost 19% per year. That's an extraordinary number. Now, this was a good period, but stocks in general were compounding at about 15%. 
So a significant improvement. And at the same time, it provided a yield of almost 5%. Oh, wow. Dividend yields in general were higher then. So it was very competitive on a yield basis. The dividend growth was about 13% a year. So it turned out to be a, a good result. And it just validated that, okay, here's a good way to invest. Let's invest in companies that raise their dividend every year. And we'd already assumed that rising income leads to rising stock prices. And so this was a good chapter, just in formalizing what we do. John, you just mentioned the rising income leading to rising stock prices. I've heard you use the analogy before of a rental home. Yep. Can you run through that just to give people an idea of how you think about it? Sure. I mean, it's a very simple concept. So I would assume that if I went out here in uh, suburban Atlanta and bought a home that I could then rent. And assuming that I could increase the rent every year, say, by 5%, after a period of time, that home would be throwing off considerably more rent to me. It just seems logical that everything else being equal, that home would be worth more because it's providing more income. It's just like a stock. If a stock continues to throw off more income, it ought to be worth more, all things being equal. And in the long run, all things are equal, not over the short run, but over the long run, which leads to one of the questions that I think you may be about to ask, which is, why do we like long term? Yeah, I was just thinking that because you said with the rental house over a period of time, or maybe even said significant period of time. Well, we've always felt that stocks are little pieces of paper to a lot of people, and they flip them around and trade them, and they think about stocks as nothing more than stocks. We think of stocks as ownership certificates in companies. So when we make an investment, we're looking at it this way. Is this something I would like to own myself? What if this were a private firm and I couldn't sell it easily? Would this be the kind of investment that I would like to make? So you look at how fast it grows, what kind of dividend it pays, what kind of dividend increases it gives you, all of those things. And, you know, ownership is really, I think, the first step in compounding which we've talked about on so many occasions, considered to be the eighth wonder of the world. And just the idea of owning a company and participating as an owner over a period of time in the returns that it generates. It's the best way to do it, we believe. So at this point in the strategy's evolution, we had identified a universe of about 400 very high quality companies that you would love to own for a long period of time, but you can't own all 400 of them realistically and have an effective strategy. How did you come up with a way to help identify the ones that you wanted to focus on? Well, I think what we were trying to do here was in our stock selections, find companies or stocks that would give us the best combination of highest dividend growth we could get, commensurate with the highest dividend yield that we could get, commensurate with the highest relative yield that we could get. The relative yield being basically a matter of establishing value. And is that relative yield relative to the market or relative to its history? What is that relative to? Relative to its history. If a stock had traded normally over time at a 3% yield and it now is at a 5% yield, that meant 
it's depressed. So we came up with a model, simple model, that simply ranked all of the 400 companies by these three characteristics, dividend growth, dividend yield, relative yield, gave it a score. It was just a model that was just designed to point us in the direction of these composite characteristics that we were looking for. We also recognized that models are models, and they're never the final instrument. Uh, Some firms do quantitative management where they rely on models. This was just one tool, just the beginning, to kind of point us in the direction of what companies might be incorporating these three elements that we look for. Then we turned to fundamental research as the model pointed us in the direction of some of these. To validate, models are always dangerous because the most attractive things in models are the ones that are most extremely out of line with historical results. And you just have to be very careful with that. And that's why you do the research work of identifying the fundamental characteristics and being sure that they're there and that the model is not deceiving you by illustrating really extreme elements in particular issues. In the article, you talked about really kind of seeking outside confirmation that what you were doing had a lot of value beyond the number of clients that you were already serving, that you felt like there could be a broader audience for it. And you went out to more of the institutional space. And the firms always had both the private clients and the institutional piece to it. But why did you want to focus on that institutional area? you got to remember, Tom, this is still pretty early, and the firm's still developing. And so I don't think it was unusual to want to receive some confirmation that what we were doing made sense, that it was sound in its elements. And also, we were interested in raising our profile among the investment community. You know, we began to reach out to certain investment consultants around the country and tell our story. And we got some interesting responses. There was never any idea that what we were doing didn't make sense. It was always a confirmation that, yes, this is fundamentally sound and it's classic investment theory and you seem to be approaching it reasonably. That was helpful. One consultant, one of the major consultants in this country, used a couple of phrases as he looked at what we did. He said, you know, I like what you do. You cut the apple differently. Well, I think that meant that the way we look at companies from a dividend growth standpoint and the fact that that results in attractive total investment return is a little bit unusual. Uh, It was at the time, and because of growth stock investing, it become so. People had become infatuated with it. And then further on in the conversation, he uttered what still remains one of my favorite descriptions of what we do. He said, it's simple but elegant. So I'll end on that, okay? And that's a pretty good one to stop on. Actually, there's another feature. Along about this time, I had developed a personal relationship with Peter Bernstein. Our listeners may not be familiar with Peter because, unfortunately, he died probably 10 or 15 years ago. But he was one of the giants, really, of the investment industry. As an investor and as an author, he's written a number of books that you'll see on the shelves of most serious investors. I was very fortunate to get to know Peter. And so along about this time when, you know, we were continuing to grow, we're thinking about what we're doing, we're trying to get better. I said, Peter, would you come to Atlanta? He lived in New York. And would you just take a look at what we do? Look at the foundation of it, the assumptions 
that we make, the way we execute it, and evaluate it for us. So he did so, and we were very pleased to welcome him. We spent a good bit of time with him, and then he wrote us a report, and we don't have time to go through the whole report, but it was a very positive conclusion. And he made a few suggestions about how to execute the strategy, never questioning the underlying philosophy. Peter also was at one time not so enamored with dividends, but later in his life became very much convicted that this was an excellent way to invest. And so we were glad to have his input and it made a lasting impression on what we do. Yeah, it's great when you can engage someone like that that has, you know, that type of history and perspective. We've talked a lot about adjustments made along the way by your own desire or in an effort to improve the process, but sometimes things are put upon you that you may not have sought out. And that certainly was the case during the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. At that time, a lot of companies cut their dividends and we found ourselves with a shrinking universe. Can you talk about what you did in response to that situation? Well, the original universe had a very heavy representation in financial stocks. Of course, 2008-9 is the great financial crisis. So it certainly had an impact on a significant portion of the members of that original universe. As we began to reflect on how this was rolling out, we thought perhaps it was best to begin to plan for any adjustment that we might make, thinking that if we were to lose enough companies from this 400-member universe that we would need to make some adjustments in terms of providing enough alternative members so that we could diversify properly in our portfolios. So what we felt would be a good solution was to maintain the emphasis on dividends. Instead of requiring every company to increase the dividend every year for at least 10 years, we lowered the standard just a bit to say maintain a dividend over a 10-year period. So no cuts. Don't have to increase it, but at least maintain it. And of course, we still had a very significant number of the new universe then that were continuing to raise their dividend every year and meeting the former standard. One of the important things that we learned was that by making this minor adjustment, the characteristics of the universe didn't really change that much. And we still had a number of companies in there, which we prefer, obviously, which were continuing to raise the dividend on a very consistent basis. It was an adjustment that, I mean, the the great financial crisis, everybody knows how significant this was, how damaging it was to our economy in so many respects. So we felt fortunate that we were able to make this adjustment without really disrupting what we do in a fundamental way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Around the same time, the firm made significant investments to broaden and deepen the equity research team. Have these additional resources helped the strategy? Well, I think so. And actually, Tom, there's a third article coming on what we call applications of the dividend growth approach in that we will amplify on the development of our research team. But you're absolutely correct. We have built out a substantial equity research department, and they're making a tremendous contribution to what we do. One of the things that's so gratifying is that the members of this team are all externals in the sense they came from other firms. But by embracing our philosophy and our approach and blending that with their ability to do fundamental research, the marriage of the two 
their ability to research within our philosophy and our approach has really been a salutary development. So more on that in the next article, but very proud of what we have here in terms of our research resources, and it's a very important part of our firm. Oh, that's great. I'm sure our listeners and readers will look forward to seeing that article. You know, we've talked about a lot of changes or tweaks to the process and the strategy over the years, but has the fundamental investment philosophy changed over that time period? Absolutely not. It's, it's, um, I, I would say it's been amplified as opposed to changed. And so, you know, every day it's like we hear this question, why not both? How can we get the yield? How can we get the growth? We do it by investing in companies that honor dividends. They honor their shareholders with dividends. And these are the kind of companies that we've found are really the highest quality companies you can find. It's been a long journey, 50 years now or so. I would just say that the evolutions are not over because every day we get up and say, how can we get better at what we do? And if you ask that question over and over again, it just takes you in the direction of maybe tweak this, maybe do this, whatever, as long as you stay firm on your original foundation. So there'll be more to come, and we look forward to getting better every day. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Thanks for joining us, John. This was really uh, insightful to hear from you on the evolutions of the dividend growth strategy over time. It's always great to get your perspective, and I appreciate you taking the time to walk through it with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. That's our show for today. If you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our article, Evolutions, Crawford Dividend Growth Strategy, on our website at insights.crawfordinvestment.com forward slash perspectives. Subscribe to the Perspectives blog while you're there, and be sure to join us for another episode next month. This is our last podcast for 2022, and I want to thank all of you who have listened, subscribed, and offered feedback. We'll continue to work to put out timely and interesting content as we move into 2023.